Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The rail industry has gouged their customers. They've shed themselves of about a third of their employees in the last six years. The rail carriers see fit to dig in their heels. These Fortune 500 companies who have made record profits these last 25 years uh, and refuse to give us anything. And unfortunately, the most labor-friendly president, quote-unquote, we've ever had, um, basically has opted to side with the class one carriers. President Biden's facing criticism from railroad workers for calling on Congress to block rail workers from striking. We'll look at why Biden's siding with big business over workers who are trying to secure paid sick days. Then the largest strike in the history of American higher education has entered its third week. We'll speak to two graduate student workers taking part in the system-wide University of California strike. We're continuing uh, using uh, the strike as a leverage technique to put pressure in the university so they can finally come in and negotiate and bargain with us in good faith. And we speak to Bianca Grolo, an independent journalist from Puerto Rico, whose work about injustices on the island, from gentrification to electrical blackouts, was recently featured in a viral video by musical superstar Bad Bunny. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Senate has passed the Respect for Marriage Act in a 61 to 36 vote Tuesday, protecting same-sex and interracial marriages at the federal level. This is Wisconsin Democrat Senator Tammy Baldwin, the first openly gay person elected to the U.S. Senate. I want to recognize the millions of same-sex and interracial couples who have truly made this moment possible by living their true selves and changing the hearts and minds of people around this country. Many of these same-sex and interracial couples are fearful. They are worried that the rights, responsibilities and freedoms that they enjoy through civil marriage could be stripped away. The law would not stop individual states from banning same-sex marriage if the conservative-led Supreme Court overturns Obergefell versus Hodges, but it would force those states to recognize marriages from another state. Of the 12 Republicans who voted in favor of the bill, Wyoming Senator Cynthia Loomis said she was vilified for supporting the measure. The bill will now go back to the House, which is also expected to pass it, then to President Biden's desk for signing. 
The House of Representatives is voting today to impose a deal that would block a rail strike after President Biden warned of devastating economic consequences. Four out of 12 rail unions, representing tens of thousands of workers, have opposed the deal struck in September, which raised wages by nearly 25 percent, but did not address the need for paid sick days and workers' grueling schedules. Lawmakers separately will vote on a proposal to add seven days of paid sick leave to the agreement after mounting pressure from labor labor groups and progressive lawmakers who oppose the imposition of the existing agreement. Rail workers are asking for 15 days of paid leave. We'll have more on this story after headlines. The U.S. announced an additional $53 million in aid to Ukraine to support its energy infrastructure amidst ongoing attacks by Russia. Also Tuesday, NATO reiterated its commitment to grant eventual membership to Ukraine. Meanwhile, earlier today, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen proposed a special court to try Russia over its crimes in Ukraine. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes, including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state. And this is why, while continuing to support the International Criminal Court, we are proposing to set up a specialized court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression. Kyiv has been pushing international actors to establish a tribunal to hold Moscow accountable for its invasion. This comes as President Volodymyr Zelensky warns Russian forces are, quote, planning something in the south as they try to advance in the region. Ukrainian officials said at least five civilians were killed in strikes in the Donetsk region on Tuesday. In Washington, D.C., a federal jury convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after the 2020 election, resulting in the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Kelly Meggs, who led the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers, was also convicted of seditious conspiracy. Rhodes and Meggs are the first defendants in almost three decades to be found guilty at trial of seditious conspiracy. Conspiracy, which can carry a sentence of 20 years. Three other insurrectionists, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson and Thomas Coldwell, were found guilty of other felonies. In related news, CNN's reporting, former Trump adviser Stephen Miller on Tuesday became the first known witness to testify to a federal grand jury about January 6th since the Justice Department appointed a special counsel to oversee the Trump investigations earlier this month. In more news about the 2020 election, D.C. federal Judge Emmett Sullivan Monday refuted Trump's claim to have absolute immunity in a lawsuit brought by civil rights groups and others over Trump's attempt to disenfranchise voters. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court of South Carolina ordered former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to testify before the grand jury investigating Trump's effort to overturn his election loss in Georgia. A Qatari official who's overseeing the FIFA World Cup has placed the number of migrant workers who've died while working on related projects between 400 and 500 people. Hassan Al-Thawadi cited the figures during an interview with Piers Morgan. What is the honest, realistic total, do you think, of migrant Numbers. workers who died from, as a result of what they're doing for the World Cup in totality? The estimate is around 400. Between, 400. Four, between 400 and 500, I don't, I don't have the exact number. That's, that's something that's being discussed. I mean, there will be people, Hassan, you say that's a lot of people. 
That's, one that's, bit is too many. That's, but they would say 400 is a, a price too big to pay. What do you say to that? What I will say is one death is a death too many. The committee overseeing the Games had previously said there were only three deaths related to the work on the World Cup. Steve Cockburn of Amnesty International said, quote, the continued debate around the number of workers who've died in the preparation of the World Cup exposes the stark reality that so many bereaved families are still waiting for truth and justice. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department approved a $1 billion sale of arms to Qatar during Tuesday's match between the U.S. and Iran. The sale would include 10 defensive drone systems, 200 interceptors and other equipment. The U.S. team won against Iran 1-0. to zero. Former Chinese President Jiang Zemin has died at the age of 96. Jiang became president in 1993. He's credited with mending China's ties with the international community and overseeing its economic boom following the country's isolation after the bloody 1989 crackdown on the Tiananmen Square protests. Jiang's passing comes amidst a series of rare public protests against the government triggered by Beijing's stringent COVID-19 policies. In Afghanistan, at least 15 people, including children, were killed and several others wounded Wednesday after a bomb exploded at a religious school in the northern Samangan province. No one's claimed responsibility for the attack. In Missouri, 37-year-old black father and grandfather Kevin Johnson was executed Tuesday evening by lethal injection after the U.S. Supreme Court denied his last plea for a stay of execution. A special prosecutor had asked the Missouri Supreme Court to halt Johnson's execution in order to fully investigate evidence of pervasive racism in his prosecution, but that request was denied Monday. Johnson was sentenced to die for the 2005 murder of a Kirkwood police officer. Johnson was only 19 years old at the time of the attack. His 19-year-old daughter, Corey Ramey, had filed a lawsuit with the ACLU challenging a Missouri law that banned her from witnessing her father's death because she's under the state's age threshold of 21. Virginia Democratic Congress member Donald McEachin died Monday after a battle with colorectal cancer. In their tributes, his colleagues in D.C. noted his commitment to social and environmental issues. McEachin had just been reelected earlier this month. His seat will now be filled in a special election. In Hawaii, Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcanoes erupting for the first time in nearly four decades. Its neighbor, Kilauea, has been erupting for over a year. This is the first time the two volcanoes have erupted together since 1984. Here in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams said police and emergency medical workers will start hospitalizing people with mental illness against their will, even if they pose no threat to others. A common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. This myth must be put to rest. Rights groups swiftly condemned the announcement. The New York Civil Liberties Union said, quote, the mayor's attempt to police away homelessness and sweep individuals out of sight is a page from the failed Giuliani playbook with no real plan for housing services or supports. The administration is choosing handcuffs and coercion, unquote. 
And in Puerto Rico, 16 municipalities have filed a lawsuit against Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, and other corporations, accusing them of contributing to the climate crisis by pushing a multi-billion-dollar fraudulent marketing scheme that downplayed the catastrophic impacts of fossil fuel. The suit also blames big oil companies for the billions of dollars in damages after a devastating hurricane season in 2017. Hurricanes Irma and Maria killed thousands thousands of people and destroyed critical infrastructure in Puerto Rico. We'll have more on Puerto Rico later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy. And all of our listeners across the country and around the world. Well, President Biden is warning that a looming rail strike could have devastating economic consequences and has called on House lawmakers to vote today to block the strike and force through a contract deal that raises wages by nearly 25 percent but includes no paid sick days and is opposed by four out of the 12 rail unions representing tens of thousands of workers. Among them is the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division, which said the move denies railroad workers their right to strike while also denying them the benefit they would likely otherwise obtain if they were not denied their right to strike, unquote. Some progressive lawmakers are pushing back. Congress member Jamal Bowman tweeted Tuesday, he, quote, can't in good conscience vote for a bill that doesn't give rail workers the paid leave they deserve. Lawmakers separately will vote on a proposal to add seven days of paid sick leave to the agreement after mounting pressure. Rail workers are asking for 15 days of paid leave. Ron Kalmanko, a locomotive engineer and organizer for Railroad Workers United, spoke to Democracy Now! Monday night. Well, unfortunately, the most labor-friendly president, quote-unquote, we've ever had, um, basically has opted to side with the Class 1 carriers. Uh, class one rail carriers because he had the opportunity uh, and he's had that opportunity since this whole debacle began uh, to basically urge, coax, cajole and otherwise badger and bully the rail carriers into meeting what are very, very modest demands of rank and file railroad workers. Um, and in his latest request here to Congress to legislate us basically uh, back to work before we even had a chance to strike um, under the terms and conditions of the tentative agreement, which is not very popular with the rank and file. We have uh, unions that represent 55 percent of rail labor have voted this contract down. And so we could have seen Biden actually opt for telling Congress he would like to see Congress pass legislation uh, that uh, mediates an end to the conflict uh, under which more favorable terms to the workers, which is to say a handful of sick days. And that's what this has come down to. Uh, railroad workers traditionally have had no sick time. And now with the very, very harsh attendance policies that we're faced with, railroad workers get very, very little time off work. And it has come to a crunch point. We're seeing workers leaving the industry in droves, in numbers never, ever believed possible. People with 15 and 20 years seniority are leaving the industry. 
Uh, and there's a crisis out there. And I don't believe the Biden administration quite understands the depth of this crisis. Since I entered the industry more than a quarter century ago, I have watched as the rail industry has made record profits. Uh, the operating ratio when I hired in, I believe, was somewhere in the mid 80s. It dropped into the 70s, 60s. The rail industry is hell-bent on achieving a 0.50 operating ratio, and who knows where they might even want to go from there. Uh, stock buybacks has reached record proportion. Uh, the dividends that have been paid out to stockholders are enormous. Warren Buffett, was, for one, who bought BNSF outright a decade ago, will state unequivocally that his investment has paid off to him way more than he even expected it to. Uh, the wealth that has been accumulated by these rail carriers uh, over the last quarter century, while they have moved less freight than they did 16 years ago, uh, shippers from practically every major shipping group that ships by rail is in a state of total discontent. They have complained vociferously to the Surface Transportation Board, uh, demanding better service. Uh, the rail industry has gouged their customers. They've shed themselves of about a third of their employees in the last six years. And they've basically pissed off just about everybody in the country except for their stockholders. And now we come down to the wire and contract negotiations where literally what separates the parties is a handful of sick time, sick time that most workers actually uh, have achieved decades and decades ago but railroad workers have traditionally gone without. And we finally have said enough is enough. We want a handful of sick days. And yet the rail carriers see fit to dig in their heels. Uh, these Fortune 500 companies who have made, like I say, record profits these last 25 years uh, and refuse to give us anything. And unfortunately, the Biden administration is incapable of siding unequivocally with us as the most labor friendly president ever. Uh, we would have expected that from him. So there's a lot of a lot of upset and a lot of discontent right now amongst the uh, the working railroaders. That's Ron Kamenko. Uh, he is a locomotive engineer and organizer for Railroad Workers Union, speaking to Democracy Now! Monday night. This is Democracy Now! For more on President Biden's call for House lawmakers to vote today to block a rail strike and force through a contract deal with no paid sick days, we're joined by Nelson Lichtenstein, distinguished professor of history at University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of of work, labor, and democracy. Professor Lichtenstein, welcome back to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of what's taking place right now. Uh, president Biden has been called by some the most pro-labor um, president uh, in the United States, and yet this is going against the wishes of a third of the unions, including the largest union of rail workers. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Well, you know, on the railroads have uh, historically been a uh, you know a, a, a flashpoint uh, of of sort of both both labor activism and also sort of setting the model for for labor relations, industrial relations for for m much more than a century. I mean, it was on the uh, the in the 19th century. Of course, there were bloody clashes between the 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 army and the railroad workers. Eugene V. Debs was put in jail when he led the 19, 1894 rail strike out of Chicago. But then also in World War One, uh, the eight hour day came to the railroads uh, via Woodrow Wilson's intervention. So the, the, so it's 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 
more than just the strike of a, of a few tens of thousands of, of rail workers. It, it, it's going to set a model. And here with Biden, yes, as the as your as Ron um, pointed out, he he claims to be the most pro labor president. And here would be an a, an occasion in which uh, that could be demonstrated, and also in which, in terms of of, of whether it's sick leave or just uh, 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 schedules that that workers can live with, uh, this would be uh, a, a real victory here. Uh, uh, a, a better contract uh, in, in an industry which is which is in fact making enormous profits um, could could set, set set a pattern for lots of other workers. And I'll say one more thing here, which I think is I, I, in this moment of kind of both sort of. Um, heightened labor activism, but also enormous resistance, a not just a better uh, uh, contract uh, put forward in Congress, which could happen. Bernie Sanders is is is, is declared that he will not uh, vote for the bill in the Senate unless it has more sick days, etc. But I think that uh, and I'm, that, that the delay, a delay in Congress um, uh, coming to a decision on this will enable the rail workers to actually begin a strike. And I think a strike, a national strike, uh, which will, which I think the, the, the industry will cave once the strike takes, takes place because they, they have the money and they, and they, and they aren't going to go to the mat for their, for the, for the, for their, for their model of, of egregious, uh, um, uh, uh, um, industrial relations, uh, a national strike would be a, a very salutary thing. It would demonstrate uh, unequivocally the power of labor, which needs to be demonstrated. So every Starbucks barista, every UC striker, every every worker out there who's you know thinking about forming a union, they will say, yes, these workers have demonstrated power. And there's enormous public support for the rail strikers, for any striker today. I mean, we're in a very rare moment, and this is the time to demonstrate that and to put that forward. And I think, and I think either that certainly a congressional, um, uh, I, 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 I'll just say that I think Biden's effort to force the old contract, which was, you know, signed before the election, uh, you know, and okay, we can't have a strike before the election. The, his effort is to force that contract through Congress. I think it's going to fail. Uh, and, um, it might pass the, the House, but I think it's going to fail in the Senate. And I think that's going to give the opportunity for something much better to take place. And, but, and possibly for a, for a, I think it'll be a short, sharp, a very potent strike that could take place. Uh, Professor Lichtenstein, I wanted to ask you, uh, corporate America obviously is putting a lot of pressure on, uh, on Congress and the White House, claiming that there will be basically an economic apocalypse if this strike occurs. Uh, but I'm wondering, over the last 20 years, much of corporate America has gotten into this uh, this notion of just-in-time production, where their warehouses are basically empty, and so they actually depend more than ever now on the transportation system providing them the goods for manufacture. I'm wondering if this, in essence, this just-in-time production method is uh, is predicated on no possibility of labor disruption, and your your sense of how that plays in. Yes, that's absolutely the case. That's true in, in whether, whether it's auto production or or the logistics uh, revolution, which brought stuff from China. Uh, yes, the the, the just in time is predicated on labor weakness because uh, obviously, if if you uh, if labor labor can gum up the <laughs> gum that up, if there's a strike or a delay, we we've seen that now. It has something to do with with, with the, the logistics problems has created uh, in, in just in time production all sorts of shortages and probably a spike in a spike spike in inflation. And I just say. All strikes, you know, just 
comfort somebody. And that, that's the whole point. That's, it's the, uh, the only weapon that labor has. And it's not, and so some, it's sometimes it's just corporate profits are, are reduced, but sometimes the public, uh, is discomforted, whether it's a hospital strike or, or a strike of municipal employees or something of that sort. So a, a yes, a strike of, 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 of uh, the uh, rail workers will, will have a discomforting impact. I think it will increase the pressure on, on, on management to cave. But let me say one thing. We just had came through a pandemic in which the U.S. government shut did something far more dramatic than a rail strike. It shut down every business in this country, you know, for a while in the spring of, of the year 2020 because there was a, an overwhelming reason to do that. I mean, it, it created a, a one of the sharpest recessions, uh, you know, in America. We recovered from it. Well, you know, in that context, a a short rail strike you know, is just, is, is, is only, is, is kind of symbolic in terms of the entire economy. Uh, and so I think, uh, we, we, we should see that and not, not as something cataclysmic at all, but this is exercising the power of labor and demonstrating that to millions of other workers who are thinking about, you know, organizing, thinking about, and maybe thinking about striking. And I'm wondering if you could comment on the role of the transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's a, who's a presidential hopeful in the future still, uh, his role uh, in uh, not being able to uh, to negotiate a uh, a uh, an, an end to the possibility of a strike. Yeah. What authority yeah. does he or doesn't he have that he hasn't used so far? Well, well, they, obviously they have many, they have lots of regulatory authority where they can tell the the uh, carriers uh, that you know, uh, that either in terms of, in terms of safety, uh, health and welfare, that you know they have to uh, they have to accommodate the unions. I mean, it's remarkable that uh, neither M- Marty Walsh, the Secretary of Labor, who was very involved in this, or Budapest, or the Interior Secretary, that they they could use their collective. Uh, uh, governmental clout to, to have the, the carriers, uh, uh, give in. What the carriers have decided to do, they, they cut the workforce by a, about a quarter to a third in the last decade. And they've had, and, and therefore they, 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 they that saved them on t- tons of money. And they've, they've, they've instituted this draconian, uh, system of, uh, of uh, labor availability, which means that, that, that workers are, have a, a very, very no. few uh, days off. I would say, just make, make one point. Uh, in another logistics industry, the, the longshore, um, has the same sort of system. That is, workers with greater seniority go to the bottom of the list. And then, and, but, but the longshore union has been able, controls its own hiring halls. Uh, and therefore it's made certain that, that workers have time off when they want, when they want it. And, and, you know, and they can take time off. They have flexibility on the railroads. It's the, it's the, it's the carriers who control the, the sort of the hiring hall, we call it. And therefore they've squeezed labor and really made, made it so that workers have to be available 90% of the time. I make one other point too. People talk about sick days. And of course, that's one of the reasons people need time off, but it's not just sick days. Uh, workers should have the right to take off work, you know, uh, in a reasonable amount for whatever reason they need it. If they want to go bowling, you know, and they, and, and, and they, that's a good time or be with their family or something. It's not just sick days. That's just, we, we use that word sick days because it's obviously you have to go to the doctor. And uh, now that, now that's different difficult on the railroads. But I think that we need to establish such a situation, such a system where the flexibility of work is not just the the employer who, who wants flexible workers to be there whenever they want them, but workers themselves can have can choose 
you know, it, it, within reason when they want to work and when they don't. And, and the Longshore Union has established that system uh, on the docks, and it's a very admirable one, and it's la- lasted for, for 70 years. Um, you know, you're a UC professor, University of California. We're going to talk about this massive UC strike that's taking place in our next segment with you and two grad students. But before we go, I wanted to ask you about one other issue after the rail strike, and that's the significance of Amazon ordered by the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, to cease and desist anti-union yeah. efforts. And this week must read out that public notice to workers at Staten Island Warehouse that won the right to unionize uh, last April. Well, yeah, of course, that's that's important. Uh, and the NLRB is getting much more aggressive uh, under their new uh, general counsel. And they are, in, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that was a nationwide, uh, uh, not just applying to um, uh, Staten Island, but nationwide uh, that L- and Amazon has been violating the law and they have to read out a statement saying that, you know, workers have the right, have rights and they can't be retaliated against. I, but I make, th- but I make this point. I mean, the, the, that's, that's important. Uh, but that's not decisive. What would be decisive? And it could take place uh, is a a linkage between federal antitrust activities under Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission and the NLRB, and they are talking to each other. That's an unprecedented thing that the antitrust people in the Biden administration who are very pro-labor and the NLRB people are talking to each other. And what needs to happen with Amazon and these other tech companies who are anti-union is the 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 threat and the 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 redefinition of antitrust as not just having to do with prices but having to do with labor relations and and wages and a, and a threat to Amazon's business model that is you know unless you uh, 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 fire your anti-union law firms and and have an actually neutral workplace where workers can can vote to to be at a union you know your your business model is going to be uh, threatened and your acquisitions are going to be threatened in the future and. That, I think that threat is 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 on the on the horizon, and I, I think it's a, a an innovation that's very important in terms of revitalizing the labor law and the clout behind the labor law, which has been missing for many many decades. Well, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, want to ask you to stay with us. Professor Lichtenstein teaches history at University of California Santa Barbara, who directs the Center for Study of Law. Work, labor, and democracy. As we move on to talk about the largest strike in the history of American higher education taking place on the campuses of the University of California. Stay with us. Well, the workers on the SP line are striking out a call. The case of Joe the Union scab, he wouldn't strike at all. His water was leaking and his driver's on the ball. And his engine and his bearers, they were all out of plumb. Casey Jones, Captain Jump, I run in. Casey Jones was working double time. Casey Jones got a wooden medal for being good and faithful to the SP line. Well, the worker said to Casey, won't you help us win a strike? He said, you better get along, you better take a hike. Then someone threw a bunch of railroad ties across the track. And Casey hit the bottom with an awful smack. Casey Jones hit the river bottom. Casey Jones broke his blue spine. Casey Jones became an angelino and took the trip to heaven on the SP line. Now Casey got to heaven to the pretty gate. He said, I'm Casey Jones, the guy that hauled the SP freight. You're just a man, said Peter, all musicians are on truck. You can get a job of scabbing at a time you like. Casey Jones got a band of heaven. Casey Jones was doing mighty fine. Casey Jones went scabbing on the angels just like he did the workers on the SP line. All right. 
Casey Jones, the union scab by the rabble rousers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to look at the largest higher education strike in U.S. history, some 48,000 graduate students, workers at 10 University of California campuses, have entered their third week on strike in an effort to secure a livable wage, more childcare benefits, expanded family leave, and other demands. On Tuesday, the University of California announced a tentative deal with postdoctoral scholars and academic researchers, but the deal doesn't cover graduate student workers who make up the vast majority of those on strike. Still with us, labor historian and University of California professor Nelson Lichtenstein, who directs the school's Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy at UC Santa Barbara. He recently wrote an article for Dissent titled The Largest Strike in the History of American Higher Ed. We're also joined by two striking graduates students. Enrique Olivares Pasante is fourth-year doctoral student in English, teaching assistant at University of California, Los Angeles at UCLA. He's the head steward of his local union, uh, UAW 2865. And Arte Sikar is a student researcher in the field of genetics at UC Davis. She's a member of Student Researchers United, has been deeply involved in organizing with them since their unionization efforts began two years ago. Um, Professor Lichtenstein, let's begin with you. Just give us the old overall picture. I mean, you just wrote this piece um, that is so important about the largest strike in U.S. higher education taking place right now. Yes, thank you. Yes, it's remarkable. And it's the largest strike because it's not just the teaching assistants and tutors and readers who've been organizing at uh, Columbia and Harvard and, and UC. They've been there for, they've been organizing and held strikes. But it also includes postdoctoral um, scholars who are several thousand of them who are, who've been organized over the last decade. And then more, most recently, uh, academic researchers, that is people with, uh, who work in the labs and, and other places, uh, with, and they're, and they're, and they were just re, just organized just, uh, uh, last year, several thousand of them. So all together, they're, all the contracts expire at the same time or, or new contracts and they've all gone out. Uh, the, the unit, the, uh, and it's, it's quite remarkable, enormous public support. Also, so again, you know, here's a disruptive strike, a public institution. Sometimes in the past, that's been, you know, uh, uh, okay, oh, you're you're ruining the the uh, education of all all our sons and daughters. But in this case, tremendous public support. All the undergraduates supported. Uh, the, the the all the the uh, the uh, the Los Angeles Times has endorsed the strike, endorsed the the demands of the strike anyway. And uh, the faculty, uh, which I'm a member, uh, has is very much in support. Um, so the the U, the uh, UC did offer a five year contract to the postdocs and to the academic researchers. They offered the postdocs uh, a, a substantial wage in part increase. In part, that's in partly because a lot of that funding comes from the federal government. Um, the academic researchers were offered somewhat less, and we've ha- and they haven't made an offer at all to the really the backbone of the strike, which are the graduate student teaching associates assistants and associates and tutors and readers. And I think that's a, that's a danger because they've taken a hard line uh, when it comes to the, uh, the, the, these grad, these TAs and the TAs were the, were the ones who really were the, the power and the spark, the, the initiative for the strike because they were the ones who were suffering the most from the, from the rising housing costs, uh, and the, and the stagnation in their wages, uh, for really the last, uh, and more than actually the erosion of their wages over the last two years, 
because of inflation. So uh, we're really coming to a crunch time uh, here, and it's more important than, than ever that the that those who've been offered a, a, a contract settlement stay out on strike and and back the teaching assistants uh, who are still um, who have not uh, no no settlement has been reached with with them at all. And Professor Lichtenstein, I wonder also if you could put this in the context of the evolution of the neoliberal model of a higher education, where increasingly uh, universities are less dependent on uh, tenure uh, faculty and, 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 more, and more dependent on uh, contingent workers and on grad students and TAs to do all of the teaching. Yes, absolutely, and and one oh, yes, and and that's just I mean the the number the proportion of te- of a tenure track fact of teachers has just declined, declined, declined. Uh, public funding for all for all state universities, uh, uh, public higher education has declined, declined, declined over the last four decades at, at the very least. And and here is a strike which is which is saying, look, we are at the heart of the university, uh, and we we deserve to be paid. And here it would have a salutary impact if it if the cost of all these contingent workers who really make the university go the researchers who are who are at the heart of the of the you know why you see as a sort of research powerhouse in the world and the and the teaching assistants of course if the if the cost to the university and to the state of california uh goes up for these people and they deserve it they're that you know this is not the ivory tower with elite uh, you know, uh, 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 upper class people who are teaching. This is a, a working class institution. Uh, uh, you know, when, 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 when we're talking about diversity and talking about recruiting new people, we're talking about working class people and, and they're now, the, you know, the staff and they're, many of them are TAs and, and grad students. Uh, you know, if, if the cost to the state goes up, that will reduce the incentive for this precisely what you said, this uh, continuing rise of the contingent workforce because it, 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 it it isn't going to save them as much money. And that will mean that the, the incentive to have a more permanent, more well-paid, more dignified work, uh, both for the, you know, will, 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 will be enhanced. And these grad students, of course, who I've taught, you know, generations of them, I mean, they, they labor for five, six, seven years to write a dissertation. The expectation used to be, okay, you know, you spend your twenties, uh, you know, in, in poverty, but then you get a good job. Well, that bargain has been totally broken. Uh, and we need to, we need to either restore that bargain or just, or simply say, okay, you're a worker and you deserve to have a, a an income and a, and a schedule which will enable you to to live a dignified life. And in California, everyone recognizes in California there's just this enormous housing crisis. From the governor to this to the legislators, everyone recognizes. And the the the, the grad students uh, and and others have said, look, if if we have this crisis, you have to pay us or do something about it. And uh, this that's what this strike is about. It has it has enormous implications way beyond the university, way beyond the status even of grad students. It's it, the UC is a national institution, really. It's uh, you know, the, it's the General Motors of, of of higher education, and what happens at UC is going to have a huge impact everywhere. I'd like to bring in Enrique Olivares Pesante uh, into the conversation. You're a fourth year doctoral student in English and teaching assistant at UCLA. Uh, what led you to join the strike, and could you talk about the actual economic conditions that you and others like you face? 
Hi. Um, well, actually, there's many reasons why I became more actively participating in the strike. Ever since I came here from Puerto Rico in 2019 to study at UCLA, uh, I felt that participating in worker-led movements, such as like joining your local workers' union as a TA, was like a necessary part for organizing not only as students but as student workers. So automatically, when we went on strike, there was that sense of like fighting for the rights and well-beings of my fellow workers, but at a material level, uh, the kind of living and working conditions that a lot of graduate student workers, uh, including from my union, UAW 2865, uh, TAs, tutors, readers, and graders, uh, they live in untenable living conditions, right? So, for example, most of us would get paid 24K a year. Um, And the cost that it's very difficult to kind of match with the cost of living here in Los Angeles. So, for example, I live in graduate housing. So I pay roughly around $1,600 a month and get paid $2,400 a month. So that means that more than half of my paycheck goes back into the university. So the university is not only one of the largest employers of the state, it also happens to be one of the largest landlords on the state, leaving only around $800 to kind of make ends meet. Um, and I think this is kind of important that a lot of other student workers are in the same kind of material conditions. You know, we are the ones who are producing the work, we're teaching in the classrooms, and yet most of these student workers qualify for food stamps. So addressing a kind of cost of living adjustment with a higher base pay, uh, it becomes more and more pressing right now as we're seeing a lot of austerity measures and changes at, at the public university. Um, And could you talk, for instance, you say uh, you came from uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, what, how are the conditions there for grad students versus what you saw in uh, uh, what you see in, U in UCLA in the California system? Well, I think one of the largest differences, right? I am a pro I'm a product of higher higher public higher education. I went to University of Puerto Rico. I studied for a ba uh, bachelor's and master's. I also taught for around three to four years as a professor in the general studies department. Um, while I was a grad student, I was only able to work as a kind of teaching assistant for one year, uh, and this was around 2011 and 12. And right now, a lot of academic Academic student positions have been cut down. So one of the main reasons that uh, a public institution such as UCLA uh, became so attractive when applying to grad school was because they had promised job security, employment, uh, tuition remission um, for for the duration of of my doc like doctoral studies. All of these were protections that were hard won by the union. Uh, and even here, when thinking on paper that these were idyllic uh, conditions so you can have a sustainable like uh, life and working conditions, uh, living in Los Angeles is quite a very different story. So it's always important. It's kind of almost like a culture shock, right? Uh, thinking that you're, mo you're going to a number one public university in the world that, that's kind of touted in all these publications. And then you realize that 24K is not enough, right? Having tuition remission is definitely uh, a very important right and benefit that we have as workers, thanks to our workers' union, but it's still not enough. Uh, working conditions are learning conditions for everybody in the university community, but yet that's, we still have a long way to go.
In addition to Enrique Olivares Pasante at UCLA, we're joined uh, by Artie Sikar. Um, she is a um, student researcher at University of California, Davis, member of Student Researchers United. Artie, thanks so much for joining us. So in a historic breakthrough, UC postdoctoral scholars and academic researchers reached a tentative agreement Tuesday on what union leaders described as their largest um, uh, as their highest ever salary increases. But workers are not returning to campus in solidarity with some 36,000 graduate student workers who remain on strike. What's important to understand here, Artie? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Amy. Um, I think, you know, what's really important to understand here in this moment is that this is a really um historic and transformative moment for a fight for us as academic workers within UC. Um, postdocs and, and academic researchers have reached this tentative agreement, but they are staying out on strike um, in solidarity with us uh, student researchers and with us academic student employees because our fight is not over. Um, we are still uh, fighting for a contract that gives us um, fair living wages that we deserve. Um, as uh, both the other speakers mentioned, we, um, as, as a student researcher um, and, and uh, within uh, the University of California, I myself have experienced, you know, um, incredibly challenging living and working conditions. Um, student researchers are negotiating for their very first contract, um, which is um, a huge moment for us, considering that before 2021, we did not have uh, a union. We uh, we democratically elected by supermajority to form our union, Student Researchers United. And then now in 2022, we are fighting for a fair contract that gives us the basic needs and, and protections in our workplace. Um, and, you know, really, student researchers are uh, in a place, a very vulnerable place, within UC, where even though we contribute to um, the cutting-edge research that UC boasts um, about, um, and we are the backbone um, of, of the research uh, that happens within UC, ranging from, you know, medical research, um, climate science research, um, really um, all of the science and, and the patents that UC can claim really comes out of, uh, you know, a lot of this labor that student researchers provide. Um, and then this this moment, we're negotiating for a contract that really allows us to, you know, make ends meet. Um, so we have so many different um, diverse researchers within UC, um, including international researchers, including parents, including caregivers. Um, and uh, we're fighting for uh, compensation that really uh, compensates us fairly and reflects, you know, the labor that we provide to so, UC. Artie, can you talk about the work that you do? I mean, you are in the field of genetics. Um, explain what happens um, and how you're compensated. Right. So um, I work as a student researcher um, within um, the genetics program here at UC Davis. And so, um, you know, I 
uh, do uh, research within the field of human genomics, which is something that is incredibly uh, competitive um, and really um, well-funded. Um, however, um, the, the research and work that I've provided, um, I do not uh, get fair compensation for the labor that I have provided in terms of, in terms of my research. Um, for example, I, uh, I myself, uh, like over 90% of um, researchers within UC who pay over 30% um, of their stipend to rent, um, have at times um, paid over 50% of my stipend to rent to live essentially near where I work in Davis, California. Um, I have struggled to make ends meet um, while working, you know, easily um, over uh, 50 hours a week, even though um, our our contracts uh, as as graduate student researchers stipulate that we are doing 50 percent of the labor. But we're working much, much longer hours than that to contribute to this research. And Arti, uh, many of the uh, of the student researchers are also international students or immigrants on visas. How has that affected their ability to take uh, labor action? Yes, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is really an important moment for international researchers as well. Um, we have thousands of international researchers within UC. Um, and, you know, many of them are out on the picket line. We are striking together because this is um, it, very important for international researchers, considering that they have an additional fee. Um, it's the non-resident supplemental tuition that they have to navigate. And that can be at minimum 10000 or um, or up to 15000 out of pocket that some researchers um, may have to take out loans to pay or some um, or are limited in terms of the um, research opportunities or research labs that they join because of this extra um, tuition stipend that they have to unjustly pay in order to work within UC. Um, and so this is something that we are fighting for is a remission of this non-resident uh, supplemental tuition um, for international researchers. And, and we stand united on the picket line to, to fight for this within our contract. Well, R.T. Sakaru, I want to thank you for being with us, student researcher in the field of genetics at UC Davis, member of the Student Researchers United, um, uh, uh, and has been deeply involved in organizing for the last two years uh, on the picket line since the beginning. Um, Enrique Olivares Pasante, fourth year doctoral student in English and teaching assistant at UCLA. She, he's the head steward of his local union, UAW 2865, been on strike since mid-November, and thanks to Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, who's at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, when we come back, we go to a journalist from Puerto Rico who's talking about the injustices from uh, how hurricanes are dealt with to the rolling blackouts. Stay with us.
Por la Frontera by Rupa and the April Fishes. Musician Rupa Maria is also a University of California, San Francisco doctor. She's among 300 signatories of a solidarity pledge not to cross the UC picket line. Other signatories include Angela Davis, Robin D.G. Kelly and Judith Butler. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show looking at Puerto Rico in a growing dispute over the country's electric grid. Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight Board has voted to extend a contract with Luma, the private Canadian-U.S. company that took over Puerto Rico's power grid, even though power failures have increased since the private takeover. Our next guest is the independent Puerto Rican journalist Bianca Grollo. This is an excerpt of her documentary, Country of Blackouts. In this clip, Bianca speaks with Puerto Rican Representative Luis Raul Torres about potential corruption within Luma. Luma admitted that the blackouts were partly due to their failure to trim vegetation. The company is in charge of cutting down trees that could interfere with the power lines, and they didn't do it on time. My patience is running out. This despite the fact that Luma has granted or extended million-dollar contracts to six companies to provide its service. The one that caught my attention the most is Centurion, because the person who started the company in Puerto Rico is a former vice president of Luma, who goes to that company, they incorporate the company, and then they come to Luma and they give them a contract of up to 60 million to do the trimming of vegetation in Puerto Rico. This is another example of the conflicts of interest that are being created to manipulate federal money. That's an excerpt from Bianca Grollo documentary, País de Apagones, or Country of Blackouts, another one of her short documentaries, People Live Here, was recently featured in a viral video by musical superstar Bad Bunny. Bianca Grollo lives in Puerto Rico, but is joining us today from New York. Can you talk about what people should understand about what Puerto Rico is going through right now, Bianca? I think what people should understand is that we're seeing the everyday consequences of colonialism. And we see it when it comes to the energy situation in Puerto Rico. We see it when it comes to the gentrification that you saw in that documentary in Bad Bunny's music video. So it affects the everyday lives of Puerto Ricans. And the fact that the U.S. federal government has a responsibility with Puerto Rico and in its hands a decision about Puerto Rico's future when it comes to its political status. And Bianca, when the government uh, uh, decided to privatize a, a, a big sector of the electrical uh, supply, uh, there were promises that things would get better. Uh, what has happened under Luma uh, since they took over? Yeah, so the electric utility used to be completely in public hands. That was the generation of energy as well as the distribution and transmission of energy. However, part of those operations, the transmission and distribution, was turned over to that private company. It's a U.S.-Canadian company called Luma. And yes, we were told that outages would be a thing of the past and that Puerto Ricans would have a better energy system and a better energy service. However, what we know according to the company's own numbers, is that now outages last longer than they used to before Luma took over. And also uh, talk about the cost as well. How has the cost uh, changed? Yeah, so right now Puerto Ricans are paying 
34 cents per kilowatt hour. What that means is that for some people, the electricity bill has doubled. And to put that into context, you know, in New York City, the price for electricity is about 10 cents below what Puerto Ricans are paying. But we know that the median income in a place like New York City is three times the median income in a place like Puerto Rico. So what we're seeing is that Puerto Ricans are carrying that heavy burden of paying extreme prices, very expensive prices for a service that's not reliable. How do hospitals and clinics cope with the blackouts? And what are you demanding and what decisions are being made today, Bianca? So over the summer, we saw a series of outages that affected hospitals. And it was striking to see these major hospitals in the dark and how they, their services were directly affected by this. Then Hurricane Fiona came in September. And what we saw was that hospitals had to go weeks operating on generators. And then when diesel started running out, you had hospitals sounding the alarm saying, we don't have enough fuel to continue to use the generators. If this doesn't stop soon, our services are going to continue to be affected and we're not going to be able to provide the service to the Puerto Rican population. So I think what you've been seeing after The, that series of events and very critical situations where Puerto Ricans don't have such a basic important service, you've been seeing many people calling for the cancellation of the contract with Luma. And when I say many people, I'm talking political leaders across parties in Puerto Rico. However, the decision makers here and, and the ones who really had the power to decide what happens with Luma going forward is the governor of Puerto Rico. And also that oversight board that you mentioned before. Now, that board is a board of unelected members. They're appointed by the president and Congress, which Puerto Ricans don't get to vote for either. And they're the ones making the decisions about what happens with Luma moving forward. Now, that first temporary contract expires today. However, yesterday we heard that Again, the decision makers, the people sitting at the table, have decided to extend that temporary contract. And they did that by bypassing the votes of the representatives of the public interest. So we're seeing how they're making these decisions and keeping the people who represent the people of Puerto Rico out of these decisions. And you mentioned the current governor, the pro-statehood governor, Pedro Pierluisi. Uh, uh, how has he responded to this Luma's mishandling of the power grid? And aren't there also some questions about some of the governor's relatives are uh, benefiting in contracts uh, as well? Well, you just heard you played an excerpt of the story we did on the energy situation, and you heard the governor say, I'm losing my patience. So at a time when we were seeing all these outages and he was facing a lot of scrutiny, he was saying Luma is on probation. We are overseeing, you know, their performance and they will not have my support if service doesn't improve. Then we saw Fiona, and then we saw that some people went a month, a month without electricity. So the governor continued to say that he wanted to see service improve. However, he has very much supported Luma staying in Puerto Rico. And to this day, he says that he is trying his very best so that Luma doesn't leave Puerto Rico because he believes that that would be the worst consequence for Puerto Rico. Um, finally, your comment on this latest news, 16 municipalities in Puerto Rico filing a lawsuit against Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell and other companies, accusing them of contributing to the climate crisis by pushing a multi-billion dollar fraudulent marketing scheme that downplayed the catastrophic impacts of fossil fuels. Your thoughts, Bianca? 
Well, in Puerto Rico, we're seeing the consequences of climate change firsthand. Those hurricanes have devastated Puerto Rico. People are still recovering. You know, five years later, we see a hurricane like Fiona. So we're seeing sea level rise swallow beaches in Puerto Rico. So I think it makes sense that the Puerto Rican people and municipalities are taking these companies to account when it comes to the consequences that they're living every day. Bianca Grolo, we want to thank you for being with us, Puerto Rican independent reporter. Um, her short documentary, Aquí Vive Gente, or People Live Here, was featured in the Bad Bunny music video titled El Apagón. Her most recent documentary is titled País de Apagones, or Country of Blackouts. We will link to both of these. Oh, and we'll be streaming this year's Right Livelihood Award ceremony today on our website at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to democracynow.org. And a huge, fond farewell to Zina Prec Rodriguez and Danielle Wu, our digital fellows, as they wrap up their time with us. Today, their last day at Democracy Now!, but you will never have a last day with us as you remain in our DNA, Democracy Now! alum. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us.